All right, everybody, welcome to the Eric Anders Lang Show. I have a pretty special episode today. This is not actually my podcast you're listening to. You are hearing it if you're a subscriber to the Eric Anders Lang Show. But this is actually my good friend's podcast that is called Spiritually Drunk, hosted by Bo Baker. And uh, basically, I thought, you know, we did this great podcast, and I was like, geez, you know what? We should put this on the Eric Anders Lang Show. And then if you guys like it, Check out what Bo does. Check out the Spiritually Drunk podcast. How many episodes are you on now, Bo? I think we're at 22 or 23. Okay, so that's uh, a lot of backlog of podcasts. Some favorites for people to listen to if they, uh, if they head over to you? Uh, if you want just pure entertainment and laughing value, Shame is a great one. Shame? That's a recent one. <laughs> uh, shame is somewhere, yeah, maybe a couple months. I mean, yeah, they're all recent to some degree, but yeah. Right. I mean, there, there's not too many, to, but Shame is a good one. Um, uh, emotional over responsibility is a Whoa. fun one. That's a lot of letters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically because <laughs> I, I really wanted to make the titles fun. Yeah. So if you've you, done a good job of that, yeah, if you pick it, the, the titles will stand out to you. And if a title oh. stands out Ooh. to you, I would listen to that. It's like one. a Ouija board. It's like, I like a, it. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to get on with the podcast here. It's like I said, it's Bo's podcast, but we talk about golf and we talk about essentially wellness in golf. What Bo's title of his podcast is, Spiritually Drunk. You know, we both are in recovery. We're both coming from a world of, you know, basically changing your life, making decisions for the better, ultimately using a lot of moments in life as a way of learning and progressing and advancing not just your own life and your own sort of, you know, uh, immediate surroundings, but the, but the wellness of the world in general. And I think obviously if you're listening to this podcast, if you're familiar with the EAL YouTube channel, if you're down with random golf club, I think you're really going to like the things that we talk about. And that's why, uh, I'm posting this here, but again, please go check out Bo's stuff. Um, spiritually drunk. You can find it anywhere, right? You just Google it or what is it? It's everywhere. It's on all, it's on, it's on all streaming platforms. All right. Well, enjoy the conversation, everybody. And thanks for having me, Bo. It's fun to have you on me on yours, my, ours podcast. <laughs> I hurt you, bad buddy. <laughs> All right, enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Spiritually Drunk, a raw, honest, and a little bit judgmental conversation about the aspects of our humanity that might just be getting in the way of that climb to the spiritual mountaintop. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Spiritually Drunk. It's your host, Bo Baker. Super, super excited in this moment because you guys are about to have a really joyful experience experiencing a dear friend of mine, the great Eric Anders Lang. Director, producer, filmmaker, a dear friend that I personally call the world's hippest, most relatable golf host on the planet. These are my own words, but I do believe it is an actual fact. And I would, I would present data to anyone that would argue with me that this is true. Uh, reshaping the way people look at the game of golf, literally. I, I mean, I think expanding the possibilities for the future of golf. Uh, the host of an amazing show, Adventures in Golf, in its fourth season. Am I correct? Fourth season? Yeah, fourth season drops uh, the 24th of September, so I don't know when this is going to air, but... Uh, Soon. Before, before it go. drops. There you go. Um, but it is, yeah, it's, and you can watch it, am I correct, you can watch it on Scratch, YouTube, how do you... Yeah, I mean, uh, YouTube is the, the best place to see it, right? Uh, and that's, uh, you know, you just type in Adventures in Golf, but it's also on Twitter and uh, Facebook, and it's Scratch TV is the media company that, you know made the show possible and I produce it and host it. It's unbelievable. First of all, I just, I mean, if you guys, anybody that listens to this, which will mostly probably be after this episode, a majority of your own following that already loves you. But if you are a golfer or into golf or ever wanted to get into golf again, this guy is, I mean, adventures in golf. I've never seen anything like it because I've never, there is no show like it. I mean, it's somebody going, you've been to Nepal. You've, you've been to places on the planet that no one has ever been to golf. Or many people have never been to golf and never will golf. Yeah, I mean, it's like that. That's kind of the the pitch for the show was I want to go to strange places around the world and play golf with strange people, and they were like, "We love it." And yeah, I mean, we don't, uh, you know, we don't go to the normal places. Um, and uh, the the thing it gets most likened to is uh, a, 
a show with Anthony Bourdain, like uh, No Reservations, you know, where he kind of just uh, digs into the local culture as much as he can through food. Yeah. So we do it with golf. Yeah, well, it's awesome, and I encourage anyone that wants to have a completely new experience of the game of golf to to check it out. And Eric, of course, social media, Instagram, Eric Anders Lang, all over the map. Please check him out, because uh, especially if you're any any athlete, but just check him out because he's awesome and his personality is so charismatic. He'll probably just draw you to the game of golf just by hanging out with him for a second. Um, so thank you. <laughs> Literally just hang out with the guy. What's he into? Okay, cool. I'm going to be into that. So thanks for being on the show. As you know, as my friend, spiritual, uh, spiritually drunk um, is, is an experiment that I'm playing with and exploring what it means to be spiritually drunk just in life. And with you, since you're so active in the world of golf, what it had me think is about, you know, what, is, what does it mean to be spiritually drunk? in like golf and or just sports for that matter. And, you know, one of the things I came across an article by this well-known um, guy named Dr. Jim Taylor. I found it on the internet and he has t- spoken all over the planet. I don't know if you know who this guy is, but he's worked with... I haven't heard of him now. Yeah, he's worked with in every sport with tons of athletes and he focuses on the psychology of sports. And, you know, for me, when I think about spiritually drunk in golf, you know, I think about the mental versus the physical or the, you know, the, the mental game versus the physical game. And so he wrote an article about, you know, why the purport, the, the amount of time that people spend in sports or in golf in really any sport that is way more focused on the physical component and the mechanics, why that is always so much more even now than the mental game. And the four reasons that he put, which I thought were interesting, which were one was old habits die hard. Like just in fact that there's an old way of doing things and it just will take a long time for that to fade away. Two, um, athletes develop the mental toughness through their routine of technical training and experience. But then he speaks to that it's only really a rare, rare athlete that really has the ability to develop mental toughness on their own through experience. Um, And then three, you can't quantify the results of mental training. But what's interesting about that, it made me think when I read that, that you actually have done an experiment, in fact, that might actually quantify that you can see the, am I correct? That I don't know if I can speak about your... Yeah, you can. Yeah. So um, what Bo's referring to is a early project that is still in the works. Uh, it started before Adventures in Golf, and it's a documentary film about sort of... Uh, aimed at looking at whether or not golf is a spiritual game was the first kind of um, thesis that we had, the first question. And then, while I quickly found out that the answer is yes, or that it depends on who you ask. And that seemed like that's going to be hard to prove in a documentary. So we kind of took a different angle, which was to see if we could prove that if golf, we to, to see if we could prove that golf is a spiritual game by, uh, by testing whether or not your performance would be improved by a spiritual technique, such as meditation. So the film is complete. We actually, um, you know, have some pretty exciting news. We've been kind of in this long phase of post-production for the last several years as my life has gotten busier and busier making internet content around golf and working with all sorts of wonderful partners and other media clients. The film has, uh, you know, been looking for the right set of hands to finish it off. And it looks like uh, we found that party. And so, you know, it's still early stages, but it looks like we will be, um, you know, finishing the film in a way that I'm going to be really proud of. And have you seen the film, Bo? Have I seen the film? I've yeah. seen it from inception to, I mean, I've seen it through all its phases. You, yeah, because we had some early screenings, right? We did yes. a screening at my house. Yeah. Did, you came to the, one of the offices. Can office we say to, the name until it actually gets aired? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's Be the Ball. Be the Ball. It's yeah. such a great name, yeah. Be the Ball. So anyway, that was a film that, and, and really that film led to Adventures in Golf pretty directly yeah. in my fundraising efforts several, several years ago. I was on camera as a documentary filmmaker seeking to raise money through Kickstarter Someone saw it and they said, geez, you're actually good on camera. Would you want to host this? This sh- Would you want to host a show? And if so, what would that be? And then, you know, shortly thereafter, Adventures in Golf was born, which is now, uh, you know, a much more front and center part of my life, ironically. Right. And and what's interesting that the reason I highlighted that is 
I don't know if I, I mean, I, I don't think it's giving it away, but in some level, I think since I've seen the film, in my opinion, other people will have to find out when that film finds a home and it gets released. But so it's interesting that his, the third reason he thinks that the mental side of game is such a small focus, the mental, the spiritual, the mind, a lot of people liken the mind to the spiritual treating that, you know, that you can't quantify it. But in fact, you actually did a little bit, in my opinion, you, you did show that, you know, focusing on that mental side of the game has a direct result on the physical, you know, so I look, I, you know, I, I'm so excited. I can't wait. I've been waiting and waiting for that. It's You guys are going to love it. Be the ball. And then the fourth thing, which is interesting, as he said, is because of the negative stigma that only messed up people work on strengthening their mind. If you can't develop it on your own, something must be wrong with you. So I find that interesting, you know, and I, and that makes sense. I never really thought about it that way, but like, oh, right. Going to actually work on your mind and getting your mind sound that in some way, a lot of people still have this idea that, well, I don't need to go work on that. Like I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. I can. Well, and, and actually we found that pro golfers had the same, uh, response, which was, um, show no weakness. Right. right. Don't don't let people know what you're working on, as well as this is my secret. Like they don't want to start giving swing tips to other players, um, especially when they feel like they have a bit of an edge as far as the the mental side of the game. You know, whatever it's bouncing back from a bad shot or visualizing a good shot, you know, whatever it is, um, they would prefer to keep those to themselves and as well not let anyone know that maybe there's a perceived, um, you know, crack in their confidence so interesting it's like not i mean not being vulnerable not some idea that if i show the vulnerable side of my game or my life that it's going to have a negative impact on me whereas lots of data and experiences people will tell you the exact opposite that when you i mean i understand from a competitive edge if you're a top 10 yeah, as an athlete world, as an athlete there well there's two t- there's there's just any athlete they've researched multiple types of athletes there's um uh the the flight response you know, fight, and, fight or flight. Yeah. So how do you, there's some athletes, you know, most athletes are going to be the fight response, which is, you know, Tiger Woods, no facial expressions, you know, mental sort of intimidation tactics on the tee box, whatever it is, you know, so, th- you know, there's a lot to be said for that. And they've even done studies on whether or not people play golf better angry. And as a pro athlete, you're in a different category. So we have to, you know, put a caveat there, but like the idea that, you would play better angry as a professional. Well, that's that's interesting, but that doesn't mean that these mental techniques of meditation and concentration are invalid. It just means that it's just a different, uh, you know, area of of emotional uh, golf, kind of where you go with that. And as an amateur, one of the problems that people struggle with is they watch golf four Sundays a year, and then go out the next Monday and wear a red shirt or, you know, put on a put on a tailor-made hat and get ready to go. And then they think that they're going to go shoot even par on the front nine. And when they double the first, they want to leave. And that's kind of the thing that I have spent most of my, you know, breath uh, trying to advocate against because enjoyment for an amateur golfer should be the primary goal. I love that. Enjoyment should be the primary goal. And, and enjoyment can come from all levels. I mean, you can have enjoyment in a competitive you know, area of your own golf game. But, and I wouldn't say it's so much vulnerability was the word I heard, but I would say it's more about acceptance, you know, and, and that is very uh, accessible for professionals as well. Cause you can access the part of your, I'm sorry, you can accept a bad shot without revealing any type of vulnerability. You just move on and have a positive attitude. And a lot of players have found that a positive attitude is a great asset to their, to their score. You kind of answered a little bit of what I wanted to ask you next, but I guess I want to open kind of with the broad question of, in your words, what does it mean to be spiritually drunk on the golf course or just in sports as a player? Right. So before I answer that question, I uh, I think it might help me and maybe the people listening to know, what do you mean by spiritually drunk? That's kind of uh, language that, you know, at least... At least, uh, you know, a golf audience might not understand or, you know, or even in general or, or even I could benefit from, you know, this is now your 25th episode. So you've got probably since you and I started, you know, by the way, everyone, we've been friends for 10 years, something like that. Eight. By the way, I almost feel like I should tell the story. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Tell the story. Should I tell the story? Yeah, how we met. How we met. How Bo and I met. This we is played story. a lot of golf together, first of all. 
That's right. And Eric usually wins most of the time. Um, but that doesn't matter, but it does be the ball. So yeah, how Eric and I met is a great story. I have a twin sister and my twin sister came home one evening from going to the driving range. Uh, eight years ago. Oh, it's been over a decade, buddy. Is it 10? It's been over 10. That's incredible. So this is when I first got to LA. That's right, because I was living in that tiny little studio apartment in Silver Lake that I paid eight hundred bucks a month for, and it was probably smaller than half of my garage currently. It was small. Do you remember that place? Of course, I remember that place. I didn't even have a bed. I had a. I had like a. I had like Couldn't a camping. Couldn't you climb up some stairs to like go into the? Top? Yeah, yeah. There was a storage area upstairs, and and it was called a bachelor, which is what they what they. It's basically what they do to make you feel better when you're really poor and looking for an apartment. <laughs> it sounds more prestige, more elite. <laughs> I lived behind the I lived behind the coffee shop in uh, in Silver Lake, and I would just and I didn't have a job, and I would just get up every day and like walk to the coffee shop and like grind over the four dollars for the coffee. But everyone else seemed to be affording it, and I couldn't. And we all looked, you know, and and that's the neighborhood. If you're not familiar with Los Angeles, Silver Lake is the area when you're really doing well, you look really really poor. So I was poor. And I looked poor, so but I still fit in, so it was fine. But anyway, yeah, nobody would have known you weren't doing well in life. Yeah, I would because because this was this the coffee shop was right next to Flea's uh, music conservatory, the the uh, the um, bassist for Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he was a visible figure in the neighborhood. So everybody just looked like they were heroin addicts, and uh, you know. So note to self: if you move to Los Angeles, if you want to look successful, you can dress like a heroin addict and pull yeah. it off. It was it was homeless chic. It was what was happening. Yeah, it's been over ten years. My sister comes home. She's gone to the driving range with a girlfriend of hers, and she comes back. Kristen. Kristen. Now. Mind you, um, am I allowed to mention recovery? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. great. Did, yeah, I'm does very your vocal audience about it. know? Very vocal oh, about lovely. it. Lovely. Yeah. So, Los Angeles is the biggest mecca for recovery in the world. It is known. It is there is a there is a greater population of recovering individuals of all types in this city than anywhere in the world, and it's just a massive city. My sister comes home from. So it's all the celebrities that need to get sober. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> because mattering matters. Um, so my sister comes home and looks at me and says, I just went to the driving range. There's a guy in recovery. His name's Eric. Do you know him? That's it. No last name, nothing. Just no description. Just, do you know a guy named Eric that plays golf? And I'm like, no, I don't know anyone. I, no. The very next day. Now, by the way, this is, you already played golf as a kid, you knew about golf. I knew about you, golf. You had clubs at the time. That's right. You're a much more accomplished tennis player. You're, you're an athlete. I'm an athlete. To, to be very fair. Right. Um, you actually, you say I win when we play golf, but you're damn competitive for playing twice a year. Right. I do. I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, take I, the compliment. You're okay, good. thank you. Thank you're, you. You're a good, and if you really tried, you could play. And actually, those of you listening, you can't see Bo's face, but he looks like Phil Mickelson, and his swing is a lot like Matt Kuchar's. It's nice and short, right around the shoulder there. Com, uh, it's compact and repeatable. Your short game's impeccable. Thank you. That's but anyway, cool. so yeah, I, I went to the driving range at Wilson. This is right when I got into golf. Because this is, well, no, it couldn't have been 10 years ago because I got into golf only about eight years ago, maybe eight and a half or nine. Really? Yeah, because I was 30. I know that I was 30. Well, yeah, which, you had just gotten into it. So yeah. I know, okay. So not? whatever. Anyway, yeah, and I was like just all golf. Like I was a psycho for golf. I didn't have, and all my golf clothes were like oversized thrift store, you know, uh, golf shirts. And I never played nice courses. I didn't have any inkling of an idea about even at that time, be the ball wasn't a thing. Like this is like pre everything. This is just Eric as a documentary filmmaker. And I would go around and like, do like I would I would film BTS on music videos and movies and I would make like you know ten bucks an hour or something and I would just eat as much catering as I could because I had nothing in the fridge and but I would go to the driving range all the time and I was nuts for golf and all my clubs were used and uh, and I would try to get everyone to come to the driving range with me because I enjoyed it so much and it was fun and Kristen uh, did play a lot of golf like she had like a little golf crew like a group of girls that would go play golf. And she and I became friends through work. We worked. We were working on a job together, a, a YouTube show, actually, ironically. Um, and I actually, whoa, that's crazy. I used to produce her YouTube show. I totally forgot about this. Yeah. And she found out about the golf thing. We went and played golf. And your sister was there, McCready. And, uh, yeah, we all just hit balls. And I didn't think anything of it. And then she talks to you. And then the next night, what happens? And then the next night, the very next night, folks. The, the, literally 24 the, hours later. The 24 hours later, the next evening. There is a meeting that I go to regularly. And the tone of this meeting, which is rare for a meeting, is that you can bring a book, if you're the speaker, that's spiritual in nature, but it doesn't have to be like a 
a recovery-based book. It can be any book that spiritually impacted you. I walk in, and this is a, and by the way, this isn't a big 200 person meeting like LA has. It was, it was kind of an off the beaten path meeting. And I think Ricky was the secretary, our friend Ricky. We, our mutual friend, yeah. Our mutual friend Ricky. And I walk in and I still haven't spoken to Eric. Eric's just sitting in the speaker seat and have not talked to him. And I sit down and he starts to speak and he says, hi. And I've never been to this meeting either. He's this, never is your, been, yeah. this is your main spot and it, I've never it, been. I, I used to go to this meeting all the time. Yeah. He says, hi, my name's Eric. And I'm going to talk about my spiritual journey, whatever he said. And very quickly into this year, he said, and the book I brought was Zen Golf, Zen Golf by Dr. Parent. And the minute he said Zen Golf and it said, Eric, my mind goes, there's just no way that it can be the Eric my sister was referring to 24 hours earlier. And ladies and gentlemen, of course it was. And we've been friends ever since. It, it really speaks to this, like, you know, these days I don't get as cosmic and philosophical as I may have used to, but it really speaks to that like element of coincidence where you're like, you know, Deepak Chopra, who has also written a book about spirituality and golf. He, uh, you know, talks about the role of coincidence in your life and basically it being a signpost to you're on the right path. And so it was a really remarkable, one of the more, you know, profound, not, not profound in the sense of like deep and meaningful, but like, but like it was a pretty immediate coincidence. And so, yeah, and then we just basically started hanging out and playing golf all the time. And so, yeah, that's, I mean, I think it's an amazing story because really the truth is when I think about the experiences of creating new friendships in my life and how they came about, there's no more magical story really in my life than my friendship with you and how that happened. It's, it, pr it's pretty special. It is really special. And, you know, it's, one, it's funny because also our friendship has kind of, uh, you know, withstood a lot of different life roles right a lot of different life circumstances like you know different relationships that you and i have been through different jobs you know uh we've we've taken on new roles we've moved around the city but you know we've always like stayed connected and tried to play as much golf as possible yeah. and um and that's been fun to watch you know what i mean and even the advent of this podcast you know if i can just reflect a little bit about that oh about, yeah like, yeah let's give the eric their eric lang perspective <laughs> on how spiritually drunk got started <laughs> Please. Well, yeah, I'm sort of <laughs> pretending to not know what spiritually drunk is because Bo and I... Well, you don't when, have to say what it means, by the way, but you can give whatever... We well, I don't even know what it means. You know what it means. I'm going to say But, but when, when you and I met, we you lived in Laurel Canyon at the time, I think. Right there. Yeah, and I lived in Silver Lake still. Or, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and then, you know, 20 or 30 minute drive in Los Angeles, which means you're never really going to hang out unless you're both out of work. And... <laughs> so... So, uh, but what's crazy is then, um, three years ago we're, you know, we're still friends talking, whatever here and there. And I, and I was looking for a house and I called you and I said, look, I just looked at this house in Laurel Canyon and, uh, you know, realized that it's a quarter mile from your house. So, so now we live on the same street. I walked over to do the podcast today and we're in this like, uh, we're in this like kind of hunting cabin in the middle of Laurel Canyon, middle of Los Angeles. But if you look out the window, you really wouldn't be sure whether or not you were totally off the grid almost, you know? And so that's been fun. And, and, and so in that, you know, closeness of, you know, how far we live from each other, we've stayed connected in a great way where it's just like casual, like breakfast, whatever, hang out. Um, and the podcast has been something that's been on your mind for a while. So it's cool for me to be here and be a part of it because this is something that, you know, you've always known you've had like a great voice and something to say, and that's really all you need, and a microphone, I guess, is all you need to start a podcast. So it's cool to see it here in its, like, you know, growing phases, right? You know, it, for, for that, that's the other thing I'll give you credit for is I spoke about doing a podcast um, to Eric on numerous occasions. A friend is somebody that can tell you what you need to hear, even though sometimes it's hard to hear. And Eric, during the middle of a conversation with an idea or all the reasons maybe it wasn't the right time yet or I hadn't figured it out, basically looked at me and said, listen, man, I don't want to hear about the podcast <laughs> again until it's actually launched. And by the way, I sound like a dick, but like that's not. No, we, you don't. We I had given you the gear like as I had extra mics and we had gone through it. And I think you were just experiencing what a lot of people experience, which could be a form of being spiritually drunk, which is, you know what you want to do. You got everything you need to do it, but you're just not taking that first step. And I, I would be lying if I said I didn't struggle with that all the time. You know what I mean? Like 
that's just something normal, like that, especially with creative endeavors. The more creative we get, the more afraid we are to put it out there. But and I was seeing that with you and it was like, just do it, you know, and it's going to be great. Well, and by the way, I don't think it was a dick move at all. I mean, it's just, you know, tough love sometimes and tough love is not tough. It's just love that anyways. Um, so back to your initial question, explain a little bit. What is, what is spiritual? Define Define spiritually drunk. Define spiritually drunk for us. So should I, as a whole or in related to sports? Since we're kind of maybe um, kind of go I, I there. Would just, I would just pretend like no one's heard the podcast Okay, great. Before. So no one's heard the podcast. What is Spiritually Drunk? Here we are 20 minutes in. You'll finally understand. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Spiritually Drunk. All right, Precision Pro, everybody. Precision Pro Golf makes amazing golf rangefinders that are the perfect combination of price and performance. Um... Listen, whenever I see someone on the range or wherever I go, if I see someone with a Precision Pro rangefinder, I see a paisano, a countryman, someone who's not interested in basically overpaying for a product. Same the same way I feel about vice balls. You know, it's like it's just like we cut out the middleman, we make a great product, and we get it out to you so that you can basically afford it. I mean, I don't know, I I don't know, I, I just I would rather have uh, something that's good value, right? Uh, right now, the NX7 Pro is on sale. Whoa, $40 off. Go get it. $40 off. That's a good deal. What's even better is that you can get an additional $10 off for being a listener of the podcast when you use the promo code ERIC at checkout. That's $50 off. I mean, jeez. I'm going to go get some. I've said that already. Over 800 verified reviews from real golfers can't be wrong. Here's what Ty had to say about his NX7 Pro rangefinder. He goes, uh, while waiting on the tee box in my last round, there was a hawk flying overhead. <laughs> the NX7 Pro is so fast and accurate that I was able to measure the distance to the hawk while it was moving. 178.4 yards, if you're curious. So that's about a, that's an easy six, hard seven. Um, if the NX7 Pro Golf Rangefinder can measure a hawk, it can definitely measure a flag. That's been my experience. Um, well, also Ty's experience. Uh, go to precisionprogolf.com and use coupon code ERIC, E-R-I-K, to get $50 off the NX7 Pro Rangefinder today. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy, and we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. All right. One more read, folks. Adidas. Over 5 million pieces of plastic are floating in our oceans, which over time get broken down, making it easy for sea life to ingest, ultimately affecting our own food chain. So it is your problem. It's not just a world problem. It's you. It affects you. Adidas is working with Parlay to prevent plastic entering our oceans and transforming into high-performance sportswear. Mm-hmm. Shoes is coming soon. Just hold on. Hold your hats, folks. I'm not even done with the ad. Stop trying to figure out what I'm going to say. Adidas is spinning the problem into what? A solution. The thread into a thread. I don't know what that means. It's written here. It says the thread into a thread. I don't know who wrote this. Adidas Golf is bringing eco-innovation to the golf course in a, the form of a special edition shoe. All right, this is legit, actually. This is the first time the Parlay shoe has been uh, a golf shoe. I've had it in um, form of a running shoe. I mean, look, it's a, it's a sick shoe that serves a purpose, okay? That's where you get it. Um, the Tour 360 XT Parlay, the first ever golf shoe. Oh, look, they already wrote it for me. The first ever golf shoe made from pla- uh, recycled. Oh, no, it's not called recycled. It's called upcycled. I don't know what that is. I feel like I should probably Google that. Upcycled plastic waste that was intercepted like Jason Bourne from the beaches and coastal communities before reaching the ocean. Dang, I didn't realize this is Jason Bourne's golf shoe intercepted i mean i'm a golf guy but i also love football who doesn't love a classic interception especially when it's jason Bourne saving planet earth entire upper of the shoe is made with threads spun 
It's also a DJ. Amazing. From the upcycled plastic waste. My phone's ringing. It's Andrew Marler. Hang on. All right. Well, that was a 20-minute phone call, but you have no idea. It just went by like that. Um, anyway, the Tour 360 XT Parlay, the first ever golf shoe made from upcycled plastic. I already read this because it's got the intercepted line. Intercepted from beaches and coastal communities in a world before reaching the ocean. The entire upper of the shoe is made from thread spun from upcycled plastic waste. Built is Built as the Tour 360 XT, you still get great traction and stability. I feel like, what's that line from Taken? I have a certain set of skills. <laughs> they will take you. Available starting June 10th at adidas.com. And for those headed to the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, a select number of pairs will be sold on site. Get into it, folks. All right, back to the show. So spiritually drunk for me really was the thing that I'm not talking about, that I'm not looking at, that I need to look at. Like the thing that really is going unsaid, going unlooked at, going unaddressed, going unworked on, that probably from my friend's perspective or anybody else's perspective has been kind of out of alignment for quite some time. If I'm going to the driving range every single day and working on my swing, but every time I go out on the course, I end up breaking a club over my leg. I'm probably doing that because there's some undealt with mind stuff, some anger. There's something going on if I'm that angry on the course that's not being addressed. Even if I'm, you know, hitting the range and I've got a job and I'm paying bills. Like if my life seems okay, but on some level there's an aspect of my life that is really out of whack. Emotional uh, substances, food, um, temperament. You name it. Like if there's just some behavioral area that I'm not really addressing, but I'm spending a lot of time like reading the spiritual books and going to the meditation retreats and hitting the range and doing all the things they say you're supposed to do. But something's just not not quite clicking. To me, that's spiritually drunk when you're like, no, but I'm doing it. I'm doing it, man. I'm doing it. Well, yeah, okay, you're doing it, but the result's not there. By the way, it's one thing if you've just started working on getting the result, but if you've been working on that result for 20 years and you still haven't gotten the result, maybe it's time to look at something else. I think, you know, one of the things to give some background, right, is that this this podcast is clearly a tad autobiographical, right? You're you're only coming from your own perspective. So you're obviously, you gave up, uh, you know, mind, uh, drugs and alcohol a long time ago. How long was it? About to be 15 years. One five. Yeah. It's a long time. In like two weeks. A quarter of your life. A quarter of my life. No, less more than that. A third of your life. More than a third. 15. That's right. <laughs> a quarter of your yeah. life would be Let's go a third. Yeah. You would have a good voice for 60. That's right. You'd also I have got, a good tennis game. Well, I got the hair for a 90 year old. You do. So. You do. So. But when did your hair turn silver? When I, it started coming out when I was 15, and it, I was fully salt and pepper by my mid-20s. How about that, ladies? Watch out. That's why it's a podcast, because if it was a video, it would just be too many comments about the silver fox. That's very kind of you. Thank it's you. It's a good look. Uh, but, you know, I mean, clearly this is like, you know, so it sounds like spiritually drunk is kind of a thing that occurs when you're basically trying to be sober. You're trying to live in a way that is like in line with, you know, like you said, re- retreats, like yoga. It's, it's kind of like that person who goes to yoga, but it's just a bitch. Who's yes. just a dick. Yeah. And you're like, dude, you're here. But at the same time, I mean, you got to remember, like, I mean, I, it doesn't sound like this podcast is aimed at judging people like that. It was initially, but it we've, was. we've moved away. We're so trying st- to move away from steer that. Steer away from the early episodes. Uh, our, our third friend, Joey, was a part of the podcast for a while who he's a, he's a hot topic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he'll be he'll be back on. He's just, you know, we've just started to move in a different direction where I'm just trying to do this and have encouraged. With, I've been friends with Joey for probably 17 years and we met back in New York. But anyway, you guys, you started this podcast and the goal of it was to what? Well, initially the goal was we're just going to judge the hell out of each other about what we think is wrong with the other person and hope that it will be relatable for other people in some way and maybe help them in a humorous way to maybe start to look at their own aspects of character that might be out of alignment. Yeah, because like, on some level, it seems like that is in and of itself spiritually drunk. Because wouldn't the opposite of spiritually drunk be complete acceptance? 
Well, but the name of the podcast is Spiritually Drunk. We aren't in complete acceptance. We're in complete judgment. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the whole thing. So so basically, you haven't had a drink in 15 years, but you're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was basically like, look, for you've known me for a long time, but I'm a guy that's been on what seems like, in my own head, a path of growth for 20 plus years. And I have made an effort from going to workshop, and I've talked about this, retreats and read the books and do the therapy, and I've done a lot of this work. But if I'm doing, if I'm spending all my time on that work, but behaviorally, I'm a constant asshole to people in my life. I'm emotionally out of whack. I am just all over the map and needy with women. I'm 50 pounds overweight. Like this is what I talk about a lot. If if I'm uh, spending money and blowing through money on an unhealthy level, like if there's a behavioral level that is clearly out of a line, or, or for me, what spiritually drunk is quite honestly, is an unlooked at behavioral pattern that's in that is directly related to why all the work I'm doing doesn't seem to be gelling on some level. Right. That's really it. That's interesting. Well, what that makes me think about is, I think your next question is, what is spiritually drunk on the golf course? And it's almost like that's a little bit of an obvious answer, right? I think we can all imagine that based on what we've just said for the last 10 minutes. So it's almost like maybe what's more interesting is, what is the opposite? And it seems like at the at the first level, the opposite would be merely awareness of whatever's happening on the golf course. And this is something that, uh, you know, Ram Das, I'm sure. Of course. Um, golfer. Loved golf. Be here now. Yeah, he, he was really into golf, and he gave a long talk on how Ram Das, if you don't know, is a... Um, uh, he was a writer in the 70s. He's still around, I believe. Uh, he became paralyzed, I believe. Uh, or he had a stroke, he had rather. He a stroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now he lives in Hawaii. But he's, he's this kind of like... You know, um, uh, you know, 1970s, super out there, uh, meditator, uh, meditation teacher, author, you know, contemporary of, uh, you know, Kerouac and Burroughs and all these kind of beat guys and uh, was really far out there and, and, and wrote some crazy books on, you know, the what was it? Um, Be Here Now Be Here was now. the name of his book. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this was at a time when kind of self-help books didn't quite exist yet. This was a totally radical movement. Nowadays, you got Oprah talking about meditation with Deepak Chopra. Um, that The best way to put it would be, would be Ram Das was the Deepak Chopra of his time, although he was born in Connecticut instead of, you know, uh, well, I actually don't know where Deepak was born. But in any event, um, he's really into golf. And the way he talked about golf in a positive way was it was merely an experience to reflect on yourself and for self-awareness. And ultimately, I think we would all agree, I would imagine, that most spiritual practices are aimed at creating more self-awareness and, and almost realizing that there's two things happening in a moment. One is the self and one is this bigger awareness that exists, some say, five feet behind you and a little above you, this third person observing that Eckhart Tolle talks about, right? So in a sense, the first way to combat spiritual drunkenness on the golf course would be merely to watch yourself play the round of golf and see what you do with a non-judgmental curiosity. And that goes back to uh, Zen golf. You know, Dr. Parent talks a lot about that stuff. Um, You know, non-judgmental awareness being a huge part of that stuff. And in some ways, you could take that away from golf. And that's one of the great things about golf is that it has these opportunities for really profound realizations about who you are in the world today in a microcosm, right? The golf course, we know it has boundaries, right? It, they're, they're all going to be about the same size. They're all going to have the same holes. They're going to have golf clubs. They're going to have tee boxes and greens and flags. And it's a miniature world. So in some way, you know, you got mini golf, which is a miniature version of golf. And then you got golf, which is a miniature version of like life on earth. And so if we treat golf with some, you know, thought, it can really become a place to observe, oh, wow, look at how angry I got over missing that three-foot putt, which I assigned an incredible amount of meaning to. And by the way, I mean, this is not something anyone, well, I don't know. This is not something I do perfectly, I'll say. Like even today, like we were out there playing and I find myself getting frustrated and it's a constant thing. And it ebbs and flows based on sleep and eat and jet lag and, you know, assigned value and even performance itself. I mean, very rarely does it occur that I think any golfer goes out there and hits every shot to their complete satisfaction. And that's just really the reality of it. You know, uh, 
even the best players in the world say I hit a few good shots in one round, one maybe. And that just becomes about what your threshold for a good or a bad shot is. But ultimately, yeah, I would say awareness non-judgmentally about what you're doing on the golf course is a key aspect to really dealing with the concept of spiritually drunk. And the truth is, if that's not interesting to you, you probably already stopped listening because golf obviously is a game that is incorporated with, um, you know, drinking and, you know, uh, sort of escaping life's problems. And, you know, that's fine. Like, I think that's really important as well. That, that serves a purpose for everybody. But there's multiple types of ways of playing golf. And I think it's really cool to have this kind of conversation because I don't get to have it that much, you know? Yeah. What I feel like I heard you say now is spiritual drunkenness on the golf course is the unaware golfer. Somebody who's unaware of what's going on and that the opposite of that is to bring awareness into the game, bring awareness and use it as an opportunity. Because, you know, for me, you bring up a good point. I mean, everything really on some level I like to look at is a lesson, is an opportunity. I mean, you don't, ha- you don't have to look at it that way. But for me, if I'm trying to grow on some level, where it's whether it's grow on the golf course or grow in life, I look at where's the opportunity. Where's an opportunity to grow and look at? Well, if I'm just getting angry on the golf course and I just go home and I just kind of crack open a six pack and I'm like, cool, I played golf today. You know, great. But there's an opportunity on the golf course to like, like you said, to say, whoa, oh, whoa, I got really angry today. So I like that bringing awareness. Um, you, you referenced Eckhart Tolle becoming the watcher, you know, and then you actually referenced, you know, pro- professionals will maybe say they only hit a few shots, a few real good shots in their round. And on some level, I think for me, you know, that's total spiritual drunkenness in my opinion, you know, because I don't, whether you're an amateur or you're just out having fun or you're top 10 player in the world, it's like, wouldn't it be beautiful if I could go out and play around and somebody asked me like, what was your best shot today? And the answer was, I kind of liked all of them. Like they were all great shots, you know? I mean, I understand from a competitive mindset that that wouldn't be the response, but you know, it would be interesting to hear that response from a professional. Yeah. I'm not sure whether that's impossible because it's a paradigm thing and you would have to have a very strange person to say that in a post round interview. (laughs) Like it would almost seem like they're high. Yeah. You would almost have to think they're high. Um, but you know, I mean, they're also trained to say certain things, right? They, and they trained, they don't have, there's no benefit for them to break the mold and, you know, whatever. But, or yeah. the other, the other reason why I think it might not happen is because it just might not benefit them internally to see it that way. They need to always see room to improve because, you know, we're, but again, we're talking about two games. We're talking about the pros and then we're talking about the amateurs. Those are, but yeah, I mean, I think that for the pros, I think that they need to be self critical. But, I think they can still do that in a non-judgmental, non-emotionally reactive way. They can still say, well, I, uh, and also expectation is a big part of it. They can say, I only expect to hit one perfect shot. The difference between an amateur and a pro giving that response where, you you know, an amateur being like, well, I kind of enjoyed all my shots today would make sense because they're not actually approaching the game the same way. Um, I, I get that. You know, what's interesting is, you know, that brings up, I was thinking, of this idea of like how we do one thing is how we do everything. When you were talking about uh, like in relationship to golf, you know, I was known as two ball Baker, right? Yeah. Cause you'd always hit a mulligan. I'd always hit a mulligan off the tee. Bo's a big mulligan guy. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of mulligans. I, well, no longer am I a two ball Baker. Is that true? You stopped? I've stopped being two ball Baker. Now, occasionally if I'm playing, I'll say out loud if I might do it two ball Baker, but I won't play the second one. I used to play the second one. Like, okay, I'll just play. So, so now you just hit it and then you pick it up. Well, I'm saying if I hit a bad one off the tee, which doesn't happen that often anymore, I'm, I'm actually pretty g- consistent on the golf course. But if I hit a bad one and I just want to hit another shot, I'll hit a second one. But before I even do that, I'll be like, here goes two ball Baker, but I won't play the second one, even if it's better. Whereas, you know, I, so I why do you to, hit the second one? Because I want the satisfaction, the potential satisfaction that might come from knowing and seeing that I can't actually hit a better shot right then. Yeah, I might. It'd be interesting for you to look at that. Well, I, this is what I'm getting. Because it's what I, very is, rare. This, I've, you're actually the only person I've seen. Well, you're in the very, I've played with probably a thousand people, maybe maybe a couple thousand. And there's not many people who hit as many second balls as you. In fact, there's nobody. 
I've seen people hit second balls, but only when it's potentially out of bounds or unplayable, as the rules would suggest, or state, rather. Well, I only used to do it off the tee, I think. I don't think I did it on the fairway or in, like, I mean, it was always more... I'm sure you have. Oh, and I'm sure I have. I'm sure you have. (laughs) I'm just saying the percentage was typically off the tee. But even still, you'd be doing this on the third, the fifth, you know, sometimes (laughs) every hole. I mean, you know, not to give you too much shit, but I mean, like, it was an interesting habit that I had to endure basically. Well, what's so interesting is I would actually hit the first one in the fairway. And sometimes what I would do is I would want to hit a second one because like I hit too big of a cut or I was wanting to like, that was what I think was most annoying is I was hitting a second one just because I was unsatisfied. Talk about spiritually drunk with the result. Like you would literally look at me and be like, bro, it's a great shot. It's in the fairway. And I would be like, no, 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 no. It's not. It needs to be better. It's this perfectionistic idea that the you know, can play. But what I'm, I was getting I'm starting at, to think maybe you have been, without the anger, because you don't ever get very angry on the course. Yeah, anger's not really been a big part of my yeah. life. But one of the things about hitting the second shot is it's you're not really looking at the other people in your foursome who maybe don't give a shit. And they just want to keep playing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this is what I'm... Because in a sense, you're playing as a five-sum at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what I'm getting at, because it had me think of, like, my dad. I've been playing with my dad for years. And for as long as I can remember, my dad basically will improve the lie on every single shot he hits. He will improve the lie of the ball on every shot. I mean, unless he walks up to his ball and it's in the fairway and it is a perfect lie, but it's almost a habit now to where he'll move his ball just out of habit. He'll just, Whoa. I mean, if it's, I mean, he'll just give himself a good lie. And when I talk about fine, it's well, just, it's just a way of playing. Right. But what I was saying is how we do one thing is how we do everything and talking about spiritually drunk on the golf course or how it can relate to life. And I think about, you know, not taking the challenge as it comes, you know, learning from the position and facing it head on. Like it's so interesting where like on a golf course or in life, taking the two ball baker, hitting it off the tee or adjusting the light, nothing wrong. Right. You get to do whatever you want, but it's an opportunity. Like for me, it's looking at like, how do I do that in the rest of my life? How do I look to just kind of... Yeah, you don't get a second shot at the other stuff. Right. There's no second shot. There's just, this is how it is. And I get to... It's, it's like literally moving into a whole world of creating a world that doesn't even exist. Yeah, so you're not living in reality. You're, you're like, not- I'm going to hit a second shot because I'm not in reality. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and in fact, you know, there is... Um, you know, the mulligan is usually considered... The mulligan is usually... Um, I find not very acceptable. And and usually if it is acceptable, it's agreed that any any everyone gets a mulligan on this hole because of X. And usually it's because um you're playing early and you haven't hit the range. Um but uh you know, the idea is you, you know, usually it needs to be universally agreed upon and then that's it. And then, you know, like the it's 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 almost cheating because you're basically getting a free shot to you know, to adjust your swing and to look at your, your ball flight and your swing. And like, like, cause when you're on the green, you can't just like practice putting before your putt, which I've done. And, you know, I mean, you're not the guy that's coming out and, you know, entering tournaments and saying that you're X handicap or whatever. Um, so it doesn't really affect anyone except your own reality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is fascinating. I wasn't <laughs> expecting we'd go here. Yeah, I know. It's pretty interesting to think about the mulligan on the course and how it translates into your life. Uh, so moving back into just some questions that I thought would be fun to kind of wrap things up with or be interesting is, I think you may have answered, uh, do you have any opinion about what's spiritually drunk in relation to the game of golf itself or like the institution of the PGA, like golf? That is a big question. Um I mean, so golf culture. Golf culture. I'm not one of these guys that is really interested in talking too negatively about the world I live in. To go back to the spiritually drunk point, I mean, I think the more interesting thing is that uh, people compare golf from a satisfaction standpoint. Uh, they it, 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 it tests the same as uh, airlines. So no one likes flying. And no one likes golf, apparently. So that's a real problem that we need to address. And if you look at the numbers, um, I don't have them on me, but I know that generically speaking, um, more people... So so golf is on a decline. We can agree with that. And the reason why it's on a decline is it's not that no one's starting golf. It's that more people are stopping than are starting. And so in a sense, we've got two problems. 
One is with the new golfer, right? We want to get new golfers to start playing. And that's a that's a definite task that's everyone in the golf industry is faced upon. And they use the phrase, grow the game, which doesn't make me cringe the way it may have in the past. Um, I typically feel like grow the game is more engineered by companies that stand to raise their stock price rather than actually increase enjoyment on the course. So getting new people to enjoy the game of golf, getting them to merely try the game of golf, like McCready, I don't know how many times your sister had hit balls, but we did it. We got someone out there. And and the culture of getting new people to the golf course is, it's not designed for that. And neither are the facilities. And as well, the golfers themselves aren't really um, put to task on bringing new people to the game of golf. Whereas when you go to uh, church or when you like, you know, go to, um, when you're given a referral, when you're doing business and someone says, I'll give you 10% of every business you bring to me, that doesn't exist in golf. There's no incentive to bring someone to the game of golf. There's actually just a detraction. You're going to slow me down. You're going to ask me a lot of questions. You're going to maybe embarrass me. And, uh, you know, and I'm not going to have fun. And like, that's like the one-to-one paradigm shift. And then the second part of it is you've got people who have been playing the game for a long time and decide to put the clubs away because they can't wrest any satisfaction from this wonderful game. That is the bigger problem. I guess that'd be the most clear example of spiritual drunkenness is when you decide to quit the game that you loved at some point in your life, I'm hoping, because it doesn't satisfy you anymore. And that's the bigger problem is this sort of uh, attrition, right? Is when people are saying, I'm not going to play anymore. I don't enjoy it. It's not fun. It takes too long. It costs too much. Um, the, the courses are too hard. I'm not good enough. Lessons are too expensive. There's better things I can do with my time. It's five hours. I have a family. I need to make money. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons why not to play golf. There's not a lot of reasons why to play golf. Other than the fact that you're damn addicted. And that addiction creates a positive ripple in your life amongst the people in it. So that's my answer to your question, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think you answered in, in a way for me was, you know, your your opinion in the culture of golf is it's a PR issue. You know, and that really yeah. it's about how... Growing the game of golf really should be more about really bringing the joy, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, that it's about how do we create the joy in golf and really recalibrate people's mind around what this game is and the opportunity. I mean, look, for me, I get out on the golf course and it's peace. I love nature. I love being with people, the community of it. I love hanging out with people that I enjoy, watching them hit amazing shots. Like when I make it less about the result on a scorecard and the overall experience that I get to have the nature around me, the person hitting the great shot. It's also like going to the spa for three hours. Like if I do that once a week to your addiction standpoint, that becomes unhealthy, like anything spiritually drunk when I'm obsessive and I need to buy the next club and get the next, I mean, but when I'm really able to step into the, just the, the overall experience of the community of golf there's nothing like golf you know and so i hear you um some fun questions to finish up with who is the most spiritually drunk golfer and why Ooh, um the 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 height of spiritually of spiritual drunkenness on the golf course would probably be a broken club and it'd be really fun to have a um a broken club counter so that we could know i mean probably Probably within the span of this podcast, you've been listening to it, I'll bet that a handful of people somewhere across the world have broken their club. Not even just one. And and so I would say that that is the most spiritually drunk golfer. I mean, I could name names as pros, but I mean, the truth is, it's any given Sunday for them. You never know. I mean, they all have the opportunity to be terribly upset. And to speak about pros John, in this way— John Daly? Well, John Daly's just drunk. Right? That's not. That's not even. He just. He's actually pretty easygoing because he's drunk. Right. Um, you know. So in some ways, I don't know. That's a, that might be an outlier into the equation. But you know, pros are just they're a different animal, right? They're right. they're playing for millions of dollars. It's their livelihood. Their families depend on it. They've got tremendous amount of stress, especially as you get into the top twenty and the top ten, right? Those guys are under a microscope. Nothing they can do is private. Um, you know, so, uh, but it would probably be Sergio Garcia. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, that's right. Oh, man, I love that answer, yeah. and we don't even need to explain. That's great. Uh, your most spiritually drunk moment on the golf course, or just pick one that comes to mind? It would be in Palm Springs, and it was about six years ago. 
um, I was playing alone. I went out there because Golf Now had a deal at the uh, at the uh, Indian Wells. There was two courses there, and I think I was playing the uh, Celebrity Course, which is a weird name for a golf course. And uh, I was playing alone, and um, I had uh, a good drive, a really good drive. And this is early on. This is me, you know, two years into golf, maybe three years, pretty early on. And this is again, this is me with no job. But just enough money to buy some gas and get some used clubs and get a tee time on golf now. And and I think part of what happened with this day, and this is good for me to remember because I can get kind of uh, out of touch with my own relationship to golf. We can, you know, kind of go anywhere and play golf anywhere more or less. And, you know, people are going to be psyched about it and they, they love what we do. And that's a really great reminder. But th- this is interesting to think about because... I had a, a discount tee time on golf. Now I believe the celebrity course bills at you know one fifty around, and I think I probably got it for like eighty. And I think I even splurged because at the time I was probably only spending thirty dollars a tee time, and I was like doing this uh, the sunset or the or the early morning. And I think because it was Palm Springs, I you know it was like a last minute thing. I think I booked in the morning and drove out there, and I I think I splurged for like the noon tee time, which for me was like a big deal. It would be like going out and getting a steak dinner all by myself, you know, like. Because I'm like, I'm not going to play Twilight. You know, like, I want to finish. I want to no get a super score. Twilight for this guy, folks. He's going for the noon. Yeah, this is this was the buffet. Like, I got the napkin in my shirt. I'm you got all... the chicken salad sandwich yeah. before you play. I, I got a bunch of appetizers. I'm ready to roll. I got a cigar, probably, you know. Yeah. like Got I'm the just... cart. You didn't get the push cart. You actually got a cart. No, I got a cart with GPS, you know. And, and I got new clubs. I remember there were new forged irons. I was really excited about them. And it had a really good drive on the sixth hole. And, uh, and I had a six iron in my hand. And uh, I, sh- I dead shank, dead shank. And I mean, guys, remember, this is early Eric playing golf. This is me not not knowing about be the ball, not not reading Zen golf at the time. No lessons. No. Uh, yeah. No lessons. Really. Nothing. Um, I would watch some YouTube videos. Um, Wayne DeFrancesco, real technical breakdown of professional swings. A lot of lines on the page, a lot of reversing back and forth. So anyway, I shank the six iron and. I get so mad, and I'm alone, that I, I take my six iron, and I'm standing about 30 feet from the cart. I don't know why, but I'm, I'm, I take the club, and I throw it. And I didn't just, like, kind of underhand. Like, I threw it. It was kind of like a, it was kind of like a baseball swing where I was trying to kind of chip it, like, just chop. And uh, perfect physics occurred, and the... The club propelled towards the golf cart, and right on that little bar where the 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 ceiling of the the roof of the cart exists, there's a little bar that comes down, and the six iron was going straight at the bar. And as I saw it heading at the bar, I was like, "Oh no, oh no!" And the shaft hit the bar, perfect, like not the head or the grip, perfect, but the middle of the shaft, no horizontal, oh horizontal, right? Yeah, yeah. So I flung it like a baseball bat, right? And you know, it's it's kind of going like a helicopter wing at the side of this thing, and 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 the middle of the shaft <laughs> makes direct contact with all the centrifugal force of the spin right at that little bar, and the club just snaps in half immediately, like just wraps around the pole and snaps in half. <laughs> and that was my first and only club I've ever broken, and. The experience, I'm sure you're listening, you may have wanted to break a club or maybe you have broken a club. If you have, I'm sure you can relate. And if you haven't, please listen to the next part because it's really important. The first feeling I had, can you guess what the first feeling I had when I when the, when I saw the club break? What the feeling I had right there was? Sadness? Embarrassment. I was embarrassed because now I had another problem on my hands. Not only did I have to go find the shanked ball, which was in some crazy manufactured Palm Springs wilderness golf course area. But I also had to go get the six iron repaired. And I mean, how, how embarrassed do you have to be to go into your golf shop and say, I need a new shaft. I mean, that was a low moment for me and I made sure I never did it again. And that, that was it for me. Um, and I remember it. And, and even as I think about it, I get like, kind of like, man, like I was lost. And I actually played with one guy a few years later who was so angry that, um, I had to excuse myself after like the 11th hole at Harding. I was like, you know, you just keep playing. I, I, I can't be around you. Like he was that. so angry. And I remember when I was playing with him, I remember thinking about that moment for me. And you know, I think a big part of what we're talking about here in the realm of sort of wellness on the golf course is kind of like 
the more that we can relate to others, the more that we can see, like, I've been there. Like, I felt that, you know? And I tried to kind of offer some, you know, compassion for this guy, but he was not having it. And and I remember just sort of, like, being like, you're on your own path, man. I, I hope you break that club soon because this is not going to work. Like, you're not going to be playing golf very long if this is your experience of it. But, uh, but yeah, it was the six iron over at Idlewild, at, um, at Indian Wells. That's so, that's such an interesting story to think about because going back to what I was saying about for me, you know, everything's an opportunity to grow and really everything you're doing, if you look at it from the perspective of like, what can I learn today? Not that I need to learn something because I got to get better, but like maybe there'll be an opportunity to learn today. And it's just really beautiful to really notice, you know, like, wow, six years ago I was breaking a club. And due to a lot of work and stuff I've done on myself in my life and the commitment I've made to just being a better human in my life, like I don't break golf clubs anymore. No. But also just for a side note, for my opinion, for anybody's listening or my listeners or Eric's listeners, I'll just go ahead and say it because I'm allowed, I will, is like, if you're breaking a glove on the golf course, I'm going to go ahead and say it. There's probably some trauma or some undealt with stuff going on in your personal life that you might want to look at some aspect of behavior because I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Not everybody breaks a golf club on the golf course. And I would go ahead and say it's a very small percentage of people, you know, and so I'm going to say it. I'm curious to know, you know, what we'll do is when we post this podcast, I'll, I'll ask yes or no, have you broken a club? And we will see of, you know, the 20,000 people that are online, we'll get a, we'll get a clear number. It'd be fun to say like, Hey, and by the way, do you have any idea if you were really to get honest, what really was the motive? It wasn't because it's not the golf club. It's not the shot. That's what's so interesting. It's not the shot that you break the club over. Well, it's it's your it's your relationship to dealing with anger. It's it's I'm dissatisfied and I cannot deal with that experience of anger. Well, my favorite slogan is outward reality is a is is out, outward uh, reality is just a projection of inner reality. So on some level, if I'm breaking a golf club or I'm angry on the golf course, what do I really not like about me? Because it's not about the shot. If I hate the shot, there's something in me I'm not liking yeah. deep. So final two questions, which I love. Tiger Woods, was he spiritually drunk then? Is he awake now? I don't know, but it seems like it. Great answer. <laughs> I don't know then. It seems like it now. Yeah. I mean, he seems like a different person. He seems like a completely transformed human. I used to remember thinking when I would watch that guy, and he's done so much for the game of golf, and God, I, I mean, I still love him today. And But when he would answer questions, there was just like a shut-offness to his energy that I was so bummed about. I was just bummed. I was like, God, well, that's I the w- athlete, right? I mean, like, well, not every athlete. It was his. It was him and his athlete. Is an athlete. Well, you're right. Not every athlete. That's the oh, athlete, right? That's I the mean, athlete that, and him. That's the premier athlete. He he is. A lot of people would say the best golfer that ever lived. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I, I look. I said, and you remember. I said, if that guy, I don't think he could ever win another major again to overcome the global level of shame that he had to endure on a public level to overcome that, not just to win. A tournament because he won tournaments after it the the experience he went through personally but to win a major and uh and now like there's just a smile there's a joy there's a tenderness in him that i want i personally want to see i want to i want to have that tenderness in my life on the golf course and then the last question is snowball spiritually drunk and please explain well he's sleeping under a chair in the corner right now um i mean he doesn't have a job he doesn't have a car he doesn't have, I don't even know if he's a legal citizen. Um, he seems relatively unmotivated, but at the same time, he appears to have great satisfaction with the people in his life. Um, doesn't make friends too easily and seems to be motivated only with humping uh, those of his species. So maybe some sex addiction there. I don't know. Um, I can help with that. Yeah. Again, I mean, you know, he's 12 or 13, which means that he's about 80 and he's living in his basically, I mean, his is parents' he, house. Is he 12 still. or 13? Yeah. When I got him, he was 10. Wow. So, so he's, he's living in his parents' house still, um, mm. you know, and, and, uh, you know, and not terribly communicative. Um, but uh, at the same time, whether or not he's spiritually drunk in his real life, in his regular life, when he's on a golf course, he comes alive. And I don't know if have you have you played with him yet? Yes, I have. Yeah, he loves the golf course. He like loves, he loves it. I he's mean, free. He's free. He runs around. He knows where I am. He can always see me. It's a big, wide open fairway. Um, 
you know, of course there are natural dangers that occur, but those those exist in every real world scenario. I mean, he get eaten by a Cody, I could get mugged that night, you know, like I could get I could you know, there's all sorts of things that could happen. So, you know, I, I, I keep him out of harm's way, but he loves the freedom. I, I let him off leash and uh and he comes home very tired and you know, he's a very obedient dog and he's very trusting and um he's very happy. So I would say that Given all of the difficulties of his past, which I'm still not clear on, um, he's doing very well, and golf has helped him. You know, what I've learned from this podcast is, you know, you just mentioned the name freedom, like snowball's free on the golf course. And, you know, for me, we talked about a lot of up and down emotional experiences on the golf course. And, you know, for me, it's about feeling free. Like if I feel free, if I feel joy, if I'm content with what's going on around me, then I'm awake whether that's on the golf course or that's in life. And, you know, I'll end by saying that if you're anybody that plays any kind of sports, just as an amateur, you're just trying to have fun, like, let it be a lesson. Let everything be a lesson, just like a relationship or just like your job. Let your physical activity, let your golf game, let your life be a lesson. What's the lesson in it? Look at it from like, what's the opportunity, you know? And maybe, and maybe that'll just lead you back to the joy. Maybe it'll lead you back to the joy that is really underneath all the nonsense, if that even makes sense. But You've really uh, said some profound things that I, it was really a joy to have you on, man. You're a dear friend of mine. And again, I can't say it enough. Uh, if, if you've ever wanted to play golf or you do currently play golf, or even as he mentioned, if you're someone that maybe has lost your, has lost the joy for the game of golf. Uh, I really still, I mean, you are an amazing guy. Your charisma and your energy as a golf personality. I've watched it. I've seen the the comments that people have made to you. Um, and I don't know anyone that I don't know personally, anyone that has had the kind of effect you're having in this moment in a beautiful sport in a beautiful game. Cause it's just a game, uh, in this game of golf. And so check out Aaron, there's laying on all of his social media, YouTube, everywhere, the random golf club, which by the way, I meant to mention that I, that may be your answer to spiritual drunkenness in golf, like creating community. Like mm-hmm. You're doing yeah. that. You're ultimately, I imagine, trying to create a new joy-filled community for the game of golf. Absolutely. And um, so thanks for coming and being on my show, bro. I appreciate thanks, bro. it. Love you. And uh, enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, there is spiritual drunk social me- Spiritually Drunk Social Media. There is uh, spirituallydrunk.com. You can email me at bobaker at spirituallydrunk.com. If you have any questions or want to be a guest or have any thoughts or ideas, love to hear from you. If you haven't, please go on the iTunes Spiritually Drunk and rate it and follow and all that fun stuff. Have a great rest of your week.